Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given. Your grace is sufficient for every single need that we have. And Lord, we turn to you to guide us, to direct us. I turn to you, Lord, that you would speak through me. And Lord, that you would build us up in that most holy faith that you would again teach us and guide us your truth, that truth that will set us free because Lord, we need to hear and we need to hear from you. And all God's people said, amen. Well, first of all, um, I've titled this the blessings of the son or the blessing of the son. Last week, we looked at the blessing of the father. And this week, we're looking at the blessing of the Son. And next week, right from the scripture, we'll see the blessing of the Holy Spirit. So we automatically see the Trinity in there. And it's laid out time and time and time again. Although, again, the, the Trinity itself, the Word, is not mentioned in the Bible. The doctrine itself is taught from cover to cover. Let me read Isaiah 48, 16. Isaiah 48, 16. Notice what it says. Come near to me and listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Jesus speaking here in eternity, um, not in past, but in, 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 in the Old Testament speaks and notice saying he was there. He's the eternal one. And he says, the Lord God, speaking of the Father, the Father has sent me, that's referring to Jesus, the one who says, I am, the one who stood there again at the burning bush, I am Jesus, and sent his spirit. The Trinity taught in the Old Testament, New Testament, cover to cover, and yet in this city, as many cities, there are Jesus-only churches. They only believe in Jesus, and the Father no longer exists, and the Holy Spirit is no longer there. And many people are following after a false gospel, which is really, Galatians, as we saw, not even a gospel at all, because it's not good news, it's not hope, it's not the truth, it is a lie. Well, again, in verses three through six, last week, we saw the blessings of the Father and we saw the, the election that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in eternity past before you were even in your mother's womb. You were chosen, set apart for God. And then in verses six through 12, we see the blessing of the Son, which focuses on redemption and that's that present time right now. That is the work that Jesus has done on the cross that you and I have life and we have life and that life is in the Son. And then next week, we'll look at verses 13 through 14 in the blessing of the Holy Spirit, which is really our inheritance in the future. Our inheritance in the future. Well, again, with again passing along, leaving election and adoption, Paul now focuses on redemption. And he begins in verse six to the praise and glory of his grace. So the next blessing is really his grace, his unmerited favor that God's hand is upon you each and every day. 
Now, one of the things that I admired, and not putting them on a pedestal, but I admire many things from many of you here. There are things I admire. But the thing that I want to comment on is, is Pastor Chuck Smith. I admire him because every day that he got up, he looked for God to bless him. He looked for God's grace to be upon him. Even if it were a trial, he considered it a blessing of God. And that's so important. He looked for God's grace. And in exactly what is happening, praise of the glory of his grace. You are sustained by his grace. You stand by his grace. You are kept until that day of the grace. And that one day when he comes for you and me will be ushered in to the kingdom. Again, Paul mentions three times, verse 6, 12, and 14, he prays God for his glory, for his grace. Each occurrence, again, is praising God. The first one is, involves the grace of God. The second one is the children of God. You and I are the children of God. He praises God for the children of God. I praise God for the brothers and sisters in Christ that encourage me, challenge me, provoke me onto good works, sometimes chastise me. I need to be chastised sometimes. Do you? Yeah, sometimes we just need to be rebuked. We need to get a, a, a brother and sister who loves you will come to you and say, you know, I'm not so sure about this or that in your life because they love you. Not to say something is to demonstrate that you really don't love someone. You cannot continue to let someone walk away from the truth and not say something. And finally, it involves the praise for the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that convicts you and me of our sin. The Spirit that brings illumination and understanding to the truth, the truth that will set you and me free. He goes on, which he freely, notice he said, bestowed upon us in the beloved. This, this grace is bestowed upon us. These blessings are in the beloved. Who is the beloved? The beloved is Jesus Christ. Notice again, Christendom, uh, speaking of the work by which God makes us accepted in the beloved, it is as if one were to take a leper and change him into a lovely youth. It's a radical change, a total change. It is the greatest miracle that ever can occur. You are in darkness, now brought into light. You are a murderer if you had hatred in your heart, but now you are a child of God. He changes lies for the people. Luke one twenty eight says, and coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Favored one means the, the grace upon you. you. You are a favored one. And when we go through this day, each day, we, we recognize that we are favored ones. His right hand of blessing is upon us. And we should be anticipant, anticipate, excuse me, that God is going to bless us and use us in some way. It may be to lead someone to the Lord, to encourage, to come alongside and build them up or to help them or provide a meal for them, but to be there. Be there as the Lord would be. Now, that term, it's interesting. When we look at beloved, I know who the beloved is, but you know what that actual word is? That actual word is simply agape. 
agape. God is love. Now this agape is again, is a, a love, and please understand that, that has no restrictions. It's sacrificial. It gives itself without expecting anything back. Beloved has given himself. Now, first of all, the father has given the son, but now the son has given himself to you, to me. And when we keep ourselves in the love of God, the idea is that we too go and give ourselves away, not expecting something in return. Anyone guilty? Oh, don't even hold your hand up. We, we oftentimes want to do something to get something in return. Sometimes we want to serve the Lord and, and just to remind the Lord we're his. No, we don't need to remind him. We serve him because he's worthy of serving because he's been good to us. He loves us. He's given himself for us. Well, that word is agape or agapeo. It really describes, first of all, the attitude toward his son. That he has given all for his son. Now he's given his son, given all for you and for me. And that's what makes you and me the favored one. The grace has been lavished. 1 John 4, 9 through 11 says this, by this, the love of God was manifested, notice, in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. But, but because God has poured his love into our hearts, if we are in the spirit, we will love those that oftentimes hurt us. We will want the best for them. We may have to set up boundaries to protect ourselves. It doesn't mean we're going to be abused, by, but we want them to come to that saving knowledge of Jesus if they've not come. And it's so important. That's when the love of God is working in us. It means we belong again to his dearly beloved, and I love this, his dearly beloved belongs to you. You know Christ is your inheritance? Wow, isn't that awesome? That he has given himself for you. The, the, the plan gave glory to God, that God would give his son and his son would give himself to you because it brings people into a relationship. Love has to have an object to love. And God chose us to love us. This is, this is again God's plan for the gospel because it brings us to Jesus Christ that we can experience his grace and experience his love. Look with me in verse seven. Notice again, all of this is in him. We have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our sins. In him, the incarnate God, God in the flesh, our savior, our redeemer, our life is hid in him. The father sees us 
in him. That's our position. And because our position's there, that we need to walk our life out in him in the power of his spirit, on reliance upon him. No longer striving on our own power, but on the power of the spirit, letting the word of God dwell in our hearts, manifest itself that it becomes flesh in us, that we naturally walk it out. We don't have to think about it, that it's changed and transformed our personality. Again, Job understood this principle in chapter 19, verse 25. As for me, I know my Redeemer lives and at last he will take his stand upon the earth. See again that Job was looking for the Redeemer to come. How did Job know? This is again the revealed knowledge of God. Now, I'm talking about scripture. There's some things that that are revealed that are given in this word and God may reveal something to you, but it does not make it scripture. These things were recorded for you and me that we would recognize when God is speaking to us and not our flesh speaking to us. Now Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says this, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, notice, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. In the fullness of time. It's interesting. The fullness of time. We'll look at it in a second. Really, what does that fullness of time mean? So many people ask that question all the time. Well, the first thing I want to call your attention to, Jesus Christ redeems you and me from slavery, from the slavery sin. Jesus Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. Because, again, he redeemed those who are under the law. Jesus Christ redeems us from empty religion. What is empty religion? That means when we're trying to get to God on our works. Instead of just coming to him just as we are and letting him fill us with his spirit. Coming and confessing our our sin and need and and believing him and his word at what he said. Empty religion is, is approaching him on our own means, yet God tells us how we come. We come through Jesus Christ. It must be centered upon Jesus Christ. Not upon the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see, magnifies, again, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the means that we go to the Father, that we have salvation. Jesus Christ redeems us from the power of Satan. You know, Satan has no power over you unless you surrender that power. He has no power over you unless you surrender that power. And we do surrender that power sometimes when we yield to our flesh, when we begin to react on our fleshly desires. Jesus Christ redeems us from the coming judgment. There's a judgment coming upon this world. It's on the unbelievers, the unregenerate, those who have chose not to respond to a savior. We saw that, that yes, we're chosen, but there's that, that free will. Jesus Christ redeems us from death. I know that I will see my loved ones 
when I go to heaven. I know that if you would pass away as a believer, I will see you at heaven. There's such assurance and such peace in that. Well, what is that, that word redemption? What is redemption? The ancient world uh, would use the word to redeem, to pay, again, a necessary ransom, to set a prisoner free from war, a captive, a debtor, or someone who was sold into slavery. It was a a common word. When I grew up, I, I learned the word redeem real quickly. You know, we had blue chip stamps and green chip stamps. And we, I, I was always taking my, my mom's stamps and putting them from the grocery store so I could go and redeem a prize, a toy. But Jesus Christ has redeemed us. We have life because of what he did. Because our self-incurred debt to slavery and sin. We have chose to sin. Yeah, we choose to sin. We choose to do it on our own power. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? You have a choice. What will you submit to? Will you submit to the flesh? Will you submit to the, the spirit? And I imagine every one of us here could say there are times that we submit to the flesh. Hopefully less. He's redeemed us and broken that power so we no longer have to, but we have to choose daily to rely upon his grace and believe it will be kept by his power. Thirdly, the, the price to rescue, well, it was the blood of the Jesus. It was the blood of the Savior. Now, again, that, that vocabulary for redeem or redemption is, is in the Old Testament, the New Testament. It speaks how God declares his people righteous. God redeemed us that he could say that you are righteous. That he could see you without any sin. Again, that's our position. We use that term justification. The purpose, again, is that we would have a right standing before him. He wants nothing to hinder that relationship with you and me. That's why we confess our sins when we sin now. Because the fellowship's broken. Because we want to be right with him. And he's made that provision when we, again, confess those sins. Again, it is a sacrifice for sin that accomplishes this forgiveness, this redemption for all the people. First of all, Jesus died for all of the people, but not everyone will receive him. Universalism says everyone in the end will be saved. And that's not true. Again, it it culminates this, again, the sacrifice for sin. And in, in, in Israel, they would have these sacrifices and would pass the sin on from year to year on the, the Day of Atonement. But it culminated, all the sacrifices culminated in one sacrifice, the Lamb of God, once for all. Jesus, when he died, he died once for all, and there's no need for any further sacrifices. See, redemption 
has accomplished our pardon. We are set free. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also died for the sins once for all. Notice the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus died for you and for me. Notice it's according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And I, I love that word, lavish. I love to, when my kids were young, just to lavish them with my love. I don't know how many have ever stood underneath a waterfall. I, I've, I've had an opportunity to go underneath a waterfall, not these huge ones, but just have the water just pounding and just covering me and overflowing me and just covering every part of my body. That's what God's grace does. That's what God's love does. That's why we're to keep ourselves in God's love, that it will just cover us totally cover us with his grace and love. And when, when we're in that place, we are really on a high. And yet, every day, we should walk with that idea that God lavishes us with his grace and love daily. Romans 3.24 says this, but being justified is a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. It's his grace, that unmerited favor. God gave himself. That's what grace is. He's given himself. And Titus 2.14 says this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Notice to purify for himself a people. That's what he wants to do in our hearts. For his own possession and zealous for good deeds. Let me ask you a question. No hands up. Are you zealous for good deeds? This is one of the things that God wants us to be zealous. Zealous to, to be available to him. It might be helping someone cross a, a, a sidewalk. It might be buying someone a meal that couldn't afford a meal. It might be taking someone in. It might be taking them to coffee or to a meal. It might be serving in the church. It might be opening your home up to a Bible study. But good deeds. Good deeds means I have to deny myself. I need to pick up my cross. It's going to cost me something and follow because that's what Jesus did. Jesus was there for the people. Again, in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as the lamb, unblemished, spotless blood of Christ. There's power in the blood. In the sense, the blood has lavished us, covered us, washed us as white as snow, cleansed us, and still cleansing us. Redemption is God's gracious, please understand that God's gracious turning to humanity in our deepest need. 
to provide what we could not provide for ourselves. When we are redeemed, we're transferred again from the kingdom of darkness into the, the kingdom of light. We are a child of God. That's our position kept in him. Jesus has made us righteous. He sanctified us. And we're redeemed by his blood. And you know the thing that is, is so powerful when you stop and think about it, There was no expense so great to give for you and me. He gave his son. The most precious thing in his life, the most precious person, his son, he gave for you and me. No expense was too great. The grace simply lavished, was, was poured out profusely upon us, upon the cross, but we experienced it. Where sin increased, grace abounded more. When we think about these things, we have so many blessings in the Son. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, but by doing, you are in Christ, who became, uh, became to us the wisdom of God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You are the wisdom of God. His wisdom is manifested. When people see that, that you came from darkness to light, they see again that right standing, not only that position, but they see that change in your life, that you're set apart for God. God is glorified. That he would, through the cross, through his son, giving his son, would die for you and me. This is the wisdom of God that confounds the wise because our flesh says, I can be good enough. And it's even a struggle for people that are believers in Christ. If I just do this, God will love me more. God loves you perfectly today. God loves you perfectly today. There was a video I watched this week. It was a, a husband who was taking care of his wife. She had dementia. He lived with her all of his life, like 60-some years. She had taken care of him all those years, and, and now she's unable to take care of she. He feeds her, he dresses her, he does everything. He, he got a bike and he made it so she has a, a big seat out in the front and they ride down by the beach. I think it's in England is where this is. And they do everything together. And his thing is, she has been so good in taking care of me. I get to take care of her now. Our Savior has been so good to us. And we want to take care of his business here. Jerome said this, the one who has yet to be redeemed is captive. He has ceased to be free by coming under the power of the enemy. So we are captives in this world, bound by the yoke of slavery, the principalities and powers, unable to release our hands from our chains. So we raise our eyes upward until the Redeemer arrives. We need to be looking up each and every day 
for the Savior coming again. Redemption, notice, is through his blood. Through the blood of the Lamb. Leviticus 17.11 says this, for the, notice, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your soul, for it is the blood by the reason that life that makes atonement. Now we apply that today to, to the blood of the Messiah, Jesus' blood. The Father gave this blood, this sacrifice, right from the very beginning of Genesis through until Jesus would come and Jesus would die once and once for all. Messiah's blood would be shed for you and for me. Blood is a symbol of life. A symbol of life which thus plays essential role in the sacrificial system, all through the Old Testament. It was pointing people to the fact that the Messiah would come one day and die for each and every person. The shedding of the blood of a sacrificial animal represents the giving of life. So when they, would, when they sacrifice it, life would be given. A picture what Christ would do for you and for me. The blood of Christ refers again to Christ, again, obedient giving of himself. Jesus willingly gave himself. These things are so important when we're sharing with people when they begin to understand. Historically, we know that Jesus died. He, he was resurrected. That's undeniable, but, but they play Jesus down as he's just, well, he's a good man. Oh, he was a prophet. No, he was God in the flesh the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, how does our forgiveness relate to Christ's redemptive grace? Origen says it this way, forgiveness of sins follows redemption, for there would be no forgiveness of sin for anyone before redemption occurs. First, we need to be redeemed to be no longer subject to our own captor or oppressor, so that having been freed and taken out of, the, out of his hands, we may be able to receive the benefit of remission of sins. Once our wounds have been healed, we're called to live in accord in piety, notice, and other virtues. Redemption comes first, then forgiveness. Look at verse 9, and he made known to us the mystery of his will really becomes the fifth blessing as we go through that chapter. Notice again, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind attention, which he purposed in him. This idea of mystery is a, is a key thought that, that we'll see 22 times in the New Testament. 22 times, this, this mystery. Now, this New Testament term, doesn't carry the idea of a secret necessarily being withheld. No, no, no. It's something that had not been previously revealed. Because the Bible, when you talk about its progressive knowledge, God begins building principles and then adding to those principles. But it was at this time, a time of dispensation of grace, that God would reveal the, the mystery of, again of his son. The mystery of of the church, the mystery of the, the death and the, and the resurrection. And Galatians 4.4 4 says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, notice again, born of a woman and born under the law. 
There was a, a fullness of time that had to come before this mystery would be revealed. You don't start learning geometry when you're in the second grade. You have to start with your uh, addition, your subtraction, your multiplication, and your division, and, and building up to it. And in the Bible, it's that same way. There's principles you build up, and all of a sudden, things begin to connect and, can, and make sense. Well, in Deuteronomy, there's something that we want to look at. It says in, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us, to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of his law. Now, there are some things that there's only for God to know. But these mysteries, the fullness of time has come. Look with me in Ephesians 1.10. And I'm going to read from the New King James in this passage, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth and in him. He gives us this big picture of this dispensation. How many understand the word dispensation? Okay, a few of you do. Now, what is the dispensation? Well, there, there's seven dispensations. And the first one is really that of probation. That means when Adam and Eve were set in the garden, they were created in creature-like holiness. They were without sin, but they were on probation. They had to be tested, just as the angels had to be tested. Satan fell and took a third of those angels. They, they were tested, and then they were confirmed. Well, again, Adam and Eve were confirmed, not in this creature-like holiness now, but in sin. And we have that inherited nature. And then there's this dispensation again that comes as a moral conscience. Romans chapter one talks about that. Because see, Adam and Eve didn't understand sin in the beginning. They were not aware of sin. They didn't know it. But after they sinned, now shame entered and they were aware of this sin. Now their conscience begins to work. So it becomes a dispensation of grace where God deals with man, again, by faith, believing in what God says, but deals with them through this moral conscience. And you and I have a moral conscience unless we've seared it. Unless we've seared it. Then there's a dispensation of, again, of, of human government. That, again, was the Tower of Babel. And we saw what that ended up with. And the languages were divided. And, and we saw in each case... Man could not rule himself. Man could not but sin. Man always tried to exalt himself, get to God on his own approach, be like God. So God then has the dispensation of promise. That was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A promise again that of the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, and the promise the Messiah would come. And that was given in the Garden of Eden even, as far as the Messiah. God dealt with man under that promise before the law. And then there's the dispensation of the law, where man was dealt with the law. And again, man could not keep the law any more than the promise. And you and I are in what's called the dispensation of grace, and I'm so thankful the dispensation of grace, because we cannot keep the law. Even when our moral conscience convicts us, sometimes we don't do the right things. But God, by giving his own son to die for you and me, 
has made provision that you and I can approach him through the blood of the lamb. There'll be one more dispensation. It's called the dispensation of the the kingdom, the dispensation of the kingdom. And, And that's where God will fulfill every promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's what's called the millennial kingdom. Now, Paul's idea is that God will make all things again, add up at the end. God's gonna bring all the pieces together at that right time, and that's important to understand. Romans 8, 18, follow with me. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly in the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who has subjected it in hope that the creation itself would also be set free from the slavery to the corruption into a freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. There's this, this earth is moving itself toward, again, a new dispensation when Jesus Christ comes again. When all of God's purposes here on earth and heaven have been fulfilled, then and then only will come the fullness of time. Then every wrong will be righted. Every matter resolved according to God's holy love and justice. You remember in the book of Revelation, again, the martyrs were under the altar crying out, waiting for the fullness of time. In the end, God is able to balance that time. God works in time when he deals with man. Going back to Genesis 15, 16, look with me. Then in the fourth generation, they will come here for the iniquity of the Ammonite is not yet complete. And this is speaking to the children of Israel. They're gonna go into the Exodus, but at a certain time, they're gonna go into that promised land. Only when the Amorite come to the point of no return, when they no longer respond, when there was no hope of salvation, God works in time when he works with you and me. In fact, 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, for the Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all come again to the knowledge of repentance. God wants to see every person to come to repent. It doesn't mean they will. But that's the heart of God, and that should be the heart of you and me. Notice again, Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him a head over all things in the church. Again, look at verse 11. In him also we've obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. We have obtained inheritance. It's interesting when we think about it, that, that, that we have received inheritance. First, we've received that salvation. We are children of God, and every blessing that we have is in Christ. We will be co-heirs with him. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse three through five, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice to obtain inheritance, and notice that inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed to the last day. You know, it says protected or kept by the power of God. Aren't you happy about that, that you are being kept until that day? Romans 8, 17 says this, and, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be able also to be glorified with him. What do you mean, suffer? It's not an easy thing to be a Christian. It means that people will not want to speak to us. People will pull away. People will mock you. You'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Sometimes your own family will want nothing to do with you. But we stand firm in Christ by his grace kept for that day. Matthew 25, 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, And come, who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We go back to that idea of election. He's prepared this place. Who is it speaking about? Come, you are blessed of the father. Those who are the elect, those who are chosen, those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll inherit a kingdom that's been prepared before the foundation of the world. They're children of God, the ones who first believed, who have trusted. And notice it's, it's after the counsel of his will or his purpose. It's his plan. It's his sovereign decree that God has chosen and orchestrates. He's in control of the events around you. You and I have to make a choice. What will we do? Will we trust in the Lord or will we trust in ourselves? Jesus Christ came to give his life a ransom for you and me to pay the sentence of death. There was a cartoon I saw many years ago. It showed a lawyer reading a, a client his last will and testament to a group of greedy relatives. You can picture that. The caption read, I, John Jones, being of sound mind and body, spent it all. When Jesus Christ wrote his last will and testament for the church. He made it also possible. Possible for us to share his riches, though. Instead of spending it all, he paid it all. He wrote us into his will. Then he died. That he would then become the advocate and make sure when we believed and trusted in him that we would receive that inheritance because of what he has done for you and me. Father, thank you 
that you have provided the spiritual blessings, everything that we need for life and godliness. Father, you had chosen us to be holy and blameless. Father, you have adopted us to be your children into the family. And Lord Jesus, you have redeemed us and forgiven us. And you have made us a blessed people. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.